Welcome to episode 61 of the GT on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend and joining me again this week is fellow analyst uh, Anshul Sag. Let's get started. Uh, my first topic is Nokia and they announced their second quarter earnings this week and um, it beat uh, the market expectations. So this, uh, this kind of begs the question, have they turned the 5G ship around? Um, I would say they're making great progress. They have a new CEO in place. Um, they've invested in two areas that are really gaining uh, tons of momentum that we've talked about on prior podcasts. And that's uh, the you know 5G private networking as well as OpenRAN. And they recently retooled their uh, ReShark chipset um, solutions to better support um, base station and you know other infrastructure development. So it seems to me that they're hitting on all cylinders. And uh, on Twitter this week, I sort of took a victory lap um, because there've been a lot of folks that have been critical of Nokia. But when I attended their global analyst forum a few years ago in person before COVID, you know, I really got an appreciation for you know some of the longer term investments that um, that they were making, um, in particular at the time, you know, with respect to transport. But certainly, these are these are two emerging areas that are gaining lots of momentum: private networking, um, you know, as well as open RAN. And so, I think um, this all points very positively to uh, they're turning things around. Uh, the stock is up as well. I, I think it's over ten dollars a share. So, what are your thoughts? I think that um, Nokia has definitely shown they're improving uh, in a lot of ways. Um, it's been a very long. Um, it's been a long journey for them. And I think that 5G was their opportunity to turn that things around. Um, and I think that if you look at the moves they've made so far, I think they've made a lot of the right moves. Um, I think them betting on massive MIMO was up front was a good thing. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it was, a, it was a good move overall for them to kind of focus on mid band and, and massive MIMO. Yeah, you know, and sometimes, you know, a leadership change helps. And certainly um, Pekka, their new CEO, um, has streamlined things and has brought, you know, a better accountability from a BU perspective. So, you know, I expect that this momentum will continue for them, but we will obviously keep track of it all and report back on future podcasts. But let's move to your first topic this week. And um, I caught this news as well, but you want to talk about um, the infrastructure bill that's being proposed by the current U.S. administration and what that means for broadband. Yeah, so they came to an agreement um, with both parties, both houses. Um, obviously, it hasn't been finalized completely yet, um, so we're going to have to see what that language looks like. Um, but there's a very specific carve-out for high-speed internet, um, and they said that it's you know, necessary for Americans to do their jobs, which we all learned very clearly during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and the, the deal uh, is not $100 billion, but $65 billion. Mm -hmm. um, and it will allow the government to, um, you know, kind of make a, an investment in the way that it did with electricity. Um, at least that was the illusion they created. Um, and that it will also help to lower prices as well as increase access um, and close the dig digital divide. Um, by passing the Digital Equity Act. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, if you look at what is going on right now, um, it seems like they removed uh, the requirement 
for 100 megabit up and down, which was something that was being discussed. Um, and I think that might be a bad thing um, because if you look at um, where we are today, um, AT&T has absolutely delivered the minimum of 25 megabits that they promised. Sure. Uh, problem is, is that they didn't improve anything beyond that. And today, 25 megabits is not very usable for a lot of things nowadays. Yeah. Um, file sizes have increased. Um, you know, you need at least 30 megabits to do a solid 4K uh, HDR video stream. Um, so people are not being able to experience things. And I mean, 25 is best case scenario yeah. Um, yeah. in some of these scenarios. So um, I'm, I don't feel like 100 megabits uh, is necessarily uh, outrageous, but I also don't think it's really what we need. We, we really should be pushing for a gigabit. Um, and I, I do think that there should be different carve outs for wireless and wired. I think wired should 100% be, be gigabit and wireless should have a different, you know, a different rule. Like, you know, I think maybe wireless could be a hundred megabits or something like that. Sure. But um, I'm not entirely excited about this as I would have been um, if they had stuck to the 100-100 requirement. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure that's great. But upload is a big problem. Um, and I think that for people to be able to work successfully from home and be content creators or do any kind of creative work, um, which is increasingly becoming a thing, um, yeah, or yeah. even just doing video conferencing, you need more upload. And right now, sure. you know, the, the situation is really bad. And I think we should be pushing for more competition and eliminating yeah. monopolies rather than trying to just pour more money into the companies that have already wasted tens of billions of dollars. I agree. I mean, competition, you know, sort of breeds innovation. And, you know, clearly, you know, as we've witnessed uh, when high tech companies have gone to uh, Capitol Hill, um, there's just a fundamental lack of acumen on, you know, telecommunications and 4G and 5G, even under the prior, you know, administration. And so uh, what, I'm, what I hope, you know, and you, as you mentioned, this is part of a larger infrastructure bill that's being hotly debated right now. It's in the trillions of dollars. And if this, if some portion of this gets, you know, uh, rolled out for broadband, what, what I expect are, you know, the experts, you know, like the operators, like the AT&Ts of the world will step in, provide the right um, advice and counsel on how to go approach this and best spend the dollars. Because, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, as we know, um, just rolling out a mobile 5G network um, costs, you know, on average, you know, 20 billion US dollars, you know, and and so, it, you know, time will tell that, you know, um, hopefully, you know, if, you know, this budget gets passed, um, you know, again, we'll have, you know, we'll have telecom experts in there to, to advise the government. Uh, but let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about Samsung Networks and Verizon. So um, it's no surprise to anyone that um, Verizon um, had a big gap in its mid-band and went to auction and spent the most money in that C-band auction. And uh, now um, the news this week was um, they announced with Samsung Networks a successful trial where they um, used uh, MIMO and uh, did a fully virtualized 5G session over C-band spectrum. And so the question is, can this help accelerate Verizon's mid-band spectrum deployment for 5G? You and I have talked about this on prior podcasts. Uh, just the inherent nature of that spectrum requires densification 
And if they were going to go about it the traditional way, it could have taken them months, if not years, to get that deployed out. So I'm encouraged that they're, um, and to no surprise, I think, you know, I've alluded to this when we talked about Verizon and, and AT&T and C-Band, that they're going to have to embrace virtualization, um, not only to get it deployed quickly, but also to leverage, um, you know, CapEx and OpEx savings. So uh, I think this is, um, this is a positive note. And uh, Samsung Networks has been a strategic partner of Verizon from the very beginning with its uh, 5G uh, fixed wireless access rollout and its mobile rollout as well. So what are your thoughts? I think this is a good thing for Verizon. Um, obviously, this is a good thing for Samsung as well sure. because it kind of proves out Samsung continues to be, you know, a lead partner uh, on, on lead 5G technologies and that they have the capabilities um, and that they're enabling Verizon to accelerate their deployment. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, like, ultimately, Verizon needs all of these things as soon as possible and the sooner the better, because they're going to have a very hard time rolling out nationwide C-band. Um, I, I think, um, to AT&T's point, I think they have a lot more cell sites. They do. That, yep. Yeah. Yep. They do. Verizon does. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they're better positioned to deploy that for network infrastructure than Verizon is. Even though Verizon claims that they have, you know, really great network density, I don't think their network density is remotely where it needs to be or as close to where T-Mobiles where and AT&Ts have gone. Um, so I, I think you and I both know densification is going to be a, a necessary thing, whether or not Verizon admits it or not. Um, but I, I think this is a good thing. It's just going to help them move things faster when they need to, which is going to start happening very soon. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned AT&T point on um, cell you know, um, infrastructure capacity. Um, I, I was on a call with executives, this was a few months ago, and I posed that question you know, with my fellow analysts and um, the executive responded back and said, hey, you know, we feel like that we have um, capacity out there to, to help us get this you know, densified and deployed. And so certainly when you look at you know, where the three big operators are, um, certainly T-Mobile has been in the lead with respect to their deployment of 5G based on their spectrum footprint. But, but I, you know, I believe you know, AT&T would be that, that second place runner and Verizon is definitely third. And um, so, you know, time, time will tell here, but, you know, it's certainly a very, you know, I think it's a very positive um, indicator, you know, for Verizon's capabilities to build out that C-band. But with that, let's shift to your second topic this week. Man, it's been earnings, you know, it's that time of the, you know, that time of the month, that time of the year where lots of companies are, are you know, announcing earnings operators as well as, you know, infrastructure providers. And you want to talk about Qualcomm and Apple in particular. And 5G. Yeah, so um, both companies reported earnings. Apple had uh, one of its strongest mid-year quarters ever. Mm -hmm. um, normally, these are their slower quarters. Um, as they, um, you know, holiday quarter is the biggest quarter for them usually. Um, and things start to trail off as sales kind of peak out. Um, and next quarter is probably going to be their slowest quarter of the year. That's just cyclical for them. Um, but they did sell an absolute crap ton of iPhones um, <laughs> and they sold more than anybody expected them to. And um, their iPhones are the highest margin product that they sell. So their profit margins went up their, their, you know, their margins, their margins, their gross margins went 
up during a pandemic and a chip shortage. Yeah. Um, so they are also taking big advantage of services um, and, and kind of expanding that. But what's really interesting about Apple earnings was that they made a very explicit statement around 5G that they didn't see 5G being a factor in the iPhone sales bump. They didn't see that 5G deployments are necessarily good enough to drive 5G device sales, specifically as 5G as a factor, which at I this point At this point in time, right? Yeah, and I think I actually disagree with that. Yeah. Um, they might be right on the coverage side if we're talking Verizon, um, but honestly, T-Mobile and AT&T's coverage, they've got 250 and 300 million pops. I don't know what you're talking about. So um, unless they're only lens into 5G's Verizon, that's a very wrong take. Yeah. Um, additionally, uh, they, their iPhone 12 sold extremely well. And one of those reasons is 5G. Uh, because I think people are buying it not because they totally expect 5G to be great today. I think they're buying it because they're going to hold on to that device for two or three years and are just going to let 5G improve while they have a 5G device already. So I think Apple's perspective is very wrong. Um, and the other side of that coin is Qualcomm, um, which saw absolutely gangbusters earnings. Um, yeah, they really they, are crushing. They they beat on revenue. They beat on um, on on EPS earnings per share. Their EPS was like almost like thirty percent higher than analysts expected, um, and they saw uh, their revenue increase seventy percent uh, year over year. Um, and they just you know the RF their F front RF front business is almost a billion dollar business now. Um, their automotive business, almost a billion dollar. And all these things are 5G related. And yeah. that's really the big thing with Qualcomm is they are the 5G bellwether. Yeah. Um, they're doing well. Five, if 5G is doing well, they're doing well. Um, they're very diversified now. So it's not just about smartphones. It's also about PCs. It's also yeah. about IoT, but it's all 5G still. So um, I think if you look at Qualcomm, uh, you'll see that they are a very good bellwether not only because of their own chip sales, but also their licensing arm, which is QTL, also mm -hmm. saw a 43% rise in its revenue, which is a traditionally 95% profit margin for them. So that means that other companies were shipping so many more 5G devices that they paid out a lot in licensing fees. So mm -hmm. overall, Qualcomm just killed it. Uh, and it, it's the first quarter Cristiano Amon, the new CEO, was in charge of the company, officially speaking. Um, so, you know, it was a really big deal for them. And um, yeah, I mean, they, they've just been doing a great job. And um, I, I really don't have much else to say other than like they've kind of proven that 5G is very much uh, a, a significant growth trend for the company. Yeah. You know, they are an execution machine. And the one category you didn't mention is infrastructure. And they're beginning to extend into infrastructure supporting small cell deployment. Um, I've mentioned this on a prior podcast. They, they helped Sprint with its first magic box and they've kind of blown out that ecosystem. They're working with other vendors like Airspan, like a dozen different vendors, Samsung, 
And that's a big deal, you know, when we talk about C-band and the need to densify, small cells are a key part of that. And they're extending their, their, their Snapdragon footprint into that space. There's tremendous upside for them. So we'll definitely keep our tabs on Qualcomm. We talk about them quite often. But let me go to my third and final topic this week. And I want to talk about Vodafone UK. And so um, they, they published a report this week where they size the overall opportunity for private networking, and in particular within manufacturing. And from my perspective, that private networking opportunity, about 50% of that total addressable market is definitely smart manufacturing and machine to machine communication. Um, they're pegging the, 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 the value of that at 6 billion pounds sterling. Uh, within the United Kingdom by 2030. And so the question is, is this a realistic prediction? Actually, they might be uh, padding it a little bit. I, I think it could even it could even grow you know to a larger value over time as people begin to experience you know the benefits of, of private networking. And you know Nokia has been a real leader. We were talking about Nokia earlier. Um, they've been you know they've been a real leader. And, um, and, and really kind of helping to drive private networking. They, they're boasting over 300 wins with customers that have multiple private networks behind those. And that number will continue to grow over time. Um, Nokia also announced their uh, multi-fire you know, support uh, for, for unlicensed deployment as well. That's LTE, but there's 5G coming there. So um, I, I think they actually sort of, you know, kind of underpin that. And it was interesting, you know, I read that they said in particular, the opportunity in the United Kingdom was within Wales. And so I've only driven through Wales on a train, but apparently that's a big manufacturing area in, in the United Kingdom. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, and also the other thing that was interesting, there was a recommendation by Vodafone to um, the EU and the European Commission on, hey, we need to continue to invest in test beds and that sort of thing. So there's been a 5G test bed program in Europe. Vodafone um, was, 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 was basically um, advocating that, the, that the, the government needs to uh, further invest in that. Um, just like you know, we're seeing infrastructure packages you know, trying to be passed through Congress here in the United States. They're, they're really lobbying for that. And, and really the angle is Vodafone says, if, if, if we can do this, if the government gets involved and the operators get on board, um, the United Kingdom could be a, a real leader in manufacturing um, with, with the kind of the deployment of 5G and smart smartness within the factory. So what are your thoughts? I think you're right that I think they're underestimating it. Um, but I think it's also, you know, how you measure the opportunity is also a, a factor sure. um, because sometimes it's difficult to measure, you know, what that opportunity might be. Like, is it a is it a revenue opportunity? Is a are there you know ancillary uh, economic impact factors that are also being counted? So um, I do think you're right. If we count everything, it'll probably be on the underside. Um, but yeah, ten years from now, absolutely, I think that yeah. six billion is an easy number to agree. And what uh, we'll do, yeah, we'll make sure that we include the link to that report when we when we post the podcast, uh, the video uh, version of the podcast. So. Let's uh, move to your third and final topic. And it's interesting, Huawei announced a new phone for the Chinese market, but it doesn't have 5G. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, if you remember, Huawei uh, has been on the entity list for quite some time. Uh, and they released a new phone this week, um, which 
was expected to be a 5G phone, um, but it actually uh, ships with two different processors, um, or at least that was the rumor. From what I'm seeing on Huawei's website, they're only showing a Snapdragon 888. So Qualcomm is actually supplying Huawei now with their processors. They have actually been a partner of Qualcomm's for quite some time, um, but Huawei has been very selective with how they choose uh, to use Qualcomm as a partner. Uh, and in this scenario, Qualcomm got permission to sell to Huawei, but they got permission to sell to Huawei under the circumstances that they do not sell them a 5G processor. So this is the first time anyone has ever used a Snapdragon 888 with a 4G modem, meaning that the new Huawei P50 uh, will actually have a Snapdragon 888 with a 4G modem, which has never happened until now. So um, that's an unfortunate thing for Huawei. Um, I think it's because, um, first of all, the expectation is, is this is gonna ship in China with Harmony OS um, and not having the Google Play Store is a big thing outside of China, but in China, you know, Huawei has their own app store and it's plenty fine. Uh, the issue is in China, I think consumers are very, very um, focused on having 5G as a feature on a flagship phone. So I think Huawei is going to have a hard time selling this if it doesn't have 5G. And I think, you know, that's part of, that was part of the plan, I think, you know, to cut Huawei off um, from semiconductor fabs to build their own chips and cutting them off from 5G chips. And it makes them not competitive. And, you know, hopefully Huawei will be able to negotiate access to 5G chips for its phones um, because it's not their infrastructure business, which is supposedly what was being scrutinized um, so we'll see what happens down the road, but right now Huawei does not have a 5G modem in its flagship phone. Yeah, it's interesting. When I first read that news, I thought, oh, you know, what was this, you know, targeted towards maybe a developing, you know, part of, you know, Asia, like in Southeast Asia, that sort of thing. But I agree with you. I mean, I think the average Chinese consumer is very tech savvy. They're very, you know, aware of 5G and China has been very aggressive, you know, in the deployment, you know, of that. And, you know, so this might, you know, might serve as a stopgap for Huawei. I mean, they've announced that they're going to take their high silicon um, semiconductor design capability and they're going to fab it. But as we, you and I have talked about on prior podcasts, bringing up a fab is, is not trivial. You know, it's, it's, it's in the tens of billions of dollars. It takes time. China doesn't have a demonstrated, um, you know, core competency in semiconductor manufacturing. And so, I mean, if anyone can do it, Huawei can do it, but, but there, there's, there's quite a runway there, you know, for them. So time will tell, but, um, you know, it, I guess, you know, it is what it is. But with that, you know, it's been another great podcast this week, Angela. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whaletown Tech and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.